and welcome to the Wildlife Garden Podcast with me, Ellie. And me, Ben. And we just want to extend a warm welcome to all you new listeners out there and also to our regular listeners because we've now been going for about half a year, haven't we, Ben? Yeah, that's right. And episode we 13, have, I think. We are episode 13 and we have actually amassed a really lovely group of followers. So thank you very much for continuing to tune in, everyone. So we're going to start today like we always do and we're going to talk about what we've seen in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, well, we had a brilliant time on holiday when the sun was out and then we came back and the sun went back in again. <laughs> so yeah, we it, haven't seen that much in the last week, to be honest, because normally at this time of year, you get all the butterflies and stuff out, but they don't tend to fly when it's chucking it down with rain all day. I was thinking just this yesterday, we were working somewhere, there's a really beautiful lavender hedge, which normally at this time of year would be absolutely smothered in all kinds of butterflies, but there wasn't a single one. I think it was actually too windy for them to even fly. Yeah, and it's in full flower. Oh, that I mean, nectar's it's about 30 just going to waste. Meters of pure lavender. And it looks just incredible, but yeah, not a single thing on it. But saying that, we have, we mentioned last time, we've been doing these night safaris and looking out for moths, but actually we Which is a fancy way of saying going out and picking slugs off our plants. Yeah, and having your neighbours wonder what you're up to. Yeah, with head torches. (laughs) No, we have actually had quite a a good, well, relatively good mothy couple of weeks, haven't we? And on one of our night safaris, we've come across the small magpie moth, which is a really, really pretty one. Uh, You should definitely go and look that up if you've not seen it before. And a day flying moth, the cinnabar as well, which feeds, or its, its caterpillars feed on ragwort. And it has these really distinctive red hind wings and black and red forewings. It's a really, really beautiful moth, if you don't know that one as well. Yeah, lovely. Was that in our garden? That was in our garden. It was just hanging out on our bin. I don't know what ragworts existing. Me that. Oh, I'm sorry. Normally you do. I do. I normally run into the house yeah. going, Ben, Ben, look at this. Well, so you did that actually this morning as we were setting up recording for this podcast, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, I actually just shared this on Facebook and Twitter. I was in the process of watering our, our planters and I thought it was a bit of leaf that was inside the watering can fluttering around while I was filling it up and then realised quickly that it was actually another moth. And I had to look it up and it was the common emerald. Really, really beautiful. Emerald green, as, as the name would suggest. And with just like a fine sort of white line marking across its uh, across its wings. And it, we're very lucky to have it, actually, because I read about it and it only occasionally turns up in gardens. It's more more commonly seen in hedgerows and sort of scrub area. So Yeah, but didn't you say one of its food plants is hazel as well? And we've just planted a hazel in our, yeah. in our garden. So this, this is what we call, uh, you know, our science where we think, yes, what we've done is exactly, exactly <laughs> uh, the reason why this thing has arrived. But who knows? Maybe it has. And it's certainly got the option now of staying and laying its eggs and having caterpillars feed on, on our hazel tree. So. Yeah, that's right. I mean, they, I don't know that there's that much hazel in the parks from well, it, what I remember. It actually feeds on not just hazel, it's hawthorns as well and blackthorn. Oh, in okay, fact, right, quite yeah. a lot of different woody shrubs. But as we said before, I I mean, there will be people gardening around us, but certainly not in our immediate vicinity. So There's not a lot of hawthorn hedging around no. us, is there? No, so we are actually, you know, we know we're providing a food source for different things by putting that tree in our garden. So that's really good. That's nice. That's a really good spot. Yeah, it's really good. And then uh, another loosely defined by us, we sort of nicknamed last week as uh, Ladybird Larvae Emergence Week because we saw so many, didn't we? Oh, that's right. The cavalry are coming. If you've got problems with aphids and stuff like that, we always say, don't panic, just wait it out. And it has been a bit slow this year, we'll be honest. The but... cavalry have been slow. The aphids have not. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> but it seemed like this week was the week. Everywhere we go, we're seeing thousands and thousands of ladybird larvae all over 
everything and you're starting to see the build-up of all the the dead aphid shells that you can see or skins really yeah. that you can see on the my fa- undersides of lots of different plants my favorite was uh i was actually in the process of cutting down some euphorbia heads which were spent this is the euphorbia caracius subspecies wolfenii it's a really beautiful herbaceous plant and yeah these flower heads were spent and i was cutting them down and i noticed that within each and almost every single stem of each individual flower there was a ladybird larvae yeah and the flowers are like little, little cups aren't they so you can you can see the the larvae inside yeah so i, I pointed it out to our client and i actually uh, persuaded her to have a sort of mulch her uh, broad beans with this euphorbia head yeah well she had loads of black fly yeah didn't she yeah. and so you just put around the plants these euphorbia <laughs> heads in the hope that the yeah the ladybirds will just crawl off crawl yep. up the stem of the broad beans and deal with the problem and then when we go back we'll get rid of the euphorbia as well yeah yeah um, and i I'm just want to mention as well we've been listening to another podcast and it's um in fact the episode i listened to was on aphids and their life cycle and it was fascinating so i just wanted to give a bit of a shout out to tom sharp who produces grubbing in the filth which is a podcast dedicated to all invertebrates and it is really wonderful it's nice and sciencey very science yeah, we, we like love it, it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well and on the topic of other podcasters we um went out to wildflower farm didn't we this weekend and uh hung out with jack perks we who did. is runs the bearded tits podcast and he's also does some video work and photography for people like Springwatch and other stuff like that they say never meet your heroes but we met one and he was lovely yeah it was and really, his wife as well so it was yeah it was fantastic really lovely yes i'll be mentioning him a bit later on as well so I think that's it for sightings. Do you yes. have any news this week? I've got one really bit of interesting news. Uh, well, I found out about this on a Guardian article. And the article was about an orchid that was a very, very rare orchid that was thought to be extinct in the UK, but which was found on the roof of a London bank. And when I first read the title, I thought, that's really weird because, you know, it's just air conditioning units and stuff like that. But the investment bank in, I think it's in central London, it's called Nomura, and they've actually got a rooftop garden there. And it's planted up with the sort of stuff that people use for green roofs all the time, low growing prostrate herbs and stuff um, that can deal with the, the really harsh conditions. But they have had somebody going up to survey it from time to time. In the latest survey, they found an orchid called the small flowered tongue orchid, and the Latin is Serapis parviflora. Yeah, it was found on the 11th floor rooftop garden of this bank. And it's only the second time this species has ever been found in the UK. Um, There was a previous colony found in Rame Head in Cornwall, but that was in 1989. Wow. And sadly, that site, it did establish, but that site was destroyed um, as a result of land mismanagement in 2009. So the orchid actually was lost. But it's back. And so they've actually found 15 plants in this colony. Now, the plants are pretty small. They only grow to about 30 centimetres tall, something like that. But they're quite an interesting looking orchid. And it's thought that they either got onto this rooftop in the soil that was brought up with it, because you can get transmission of non-native plants. And we'll be talking about native versus non-native plants today as our main topic. It's a very juicy topic. Yeah. But you can get seed smuggling in on imported topsoil, because you're never really sure where that topsoil comes from. But it's also thought because the seeds of lots of aphids, uh, aphids, seeds of lots of orchids are so light, they can actually blow on the wind. And the natural habitat for this orchid is in mainland Europe. So it's probable that a seed has just been brought in on the wind. And this was just the place it happened to settle and it's established a colony. 
Now, there's two ways to sort of think about this. One is it's absolutely fantastic because, as we will come on to later, plants that arrive by their own steam are regarded as native. So if this establishes, and if that is the way that it got into the UK, then maybe that's a new native orchid for us. Does this mean that that rooftop now has to be protected as some sort of triple SI? Well, it's already being managed <laughs> okay. um, for for wildlife and for the benefit of those plants. But there is a sort of a flip side to this. It was Mark Spencer, who's the honorary botany curator for the Linnaean Society in London. He said, while on the one hand, this is a very interesting event, there is a deeply concerning undercurrent, namely climate change. And this is one of the many Mediterranean ecosystem plants that are colonising the UK and expanding their range. The extent of these changes are very considerable, and they are yet another example of the natural world responding rapidly to these pressures while we remain largely oblivious. So really what he's saying is climate change has an impact that we can actually see if we bother to look because we can start to see plants from other ecosystems finding their way into the UK. Cool. Well, that's, yeah, that's, I guess that's good and bad news, like you said. I think it's mostly good. Yeah. I mean, if it's colonised in 1989 before, Mm. then I think it's good news because if it also arrived naturally in 1989, then like a lot of the um, dragonflies and things that are starting to come over from Central Mm. Europe and things like the tree bumblebee as well, like I said, if they arrive of their own steam, then that's absolutely fine. You know, there's no problem with it at all. And there's nothing, even if there was a problem with it, there's nothing you can do to stop it, basically. My news is another shout out, if you like, to try and get some support for another citizen science project that happened. Now, earlier in the year, we talked about the big garden bird watch, which is hugely popular. And I think millions of people get involved with that. Well, another one that also happens, which is a bit less well known, but definitely gaining traction, is the Butterfly Conservation UK's Big Butterfly Count. Now, this year it runs for three whole weeks. So you've got three weeks to get involved. And that's from Friday the 16th of July to Sunday the 8th of August. And all you have to do is choose a spot to record butterflies and also day flying moths like our cinnabar moth and simply watch for 15 minutes and record what you see. Butterfly Conservation UK has this online map. So as you upload your results, it actually gets put onto this map that you can actually look at in sort of real time and just see. Really, really cool. I'm looking forward to actually just having a look at that later in the year. So yeah, last year, over 11,000 people actually got involved and they submitted over 145,000 counts and counted in total 1.5 million butterflies. Wow. (laughs) Does it say to look inside your watering cans just in case you see a moth? I think it should. I might might ask them. Yeah, as we said before, these citizen science projects really, really are very, very important because it essentially just turns us all into ecologists. And there are only a certain number of, you know, professional ecologists in the country. So by all of us turning our head to what's going on outside and submitting actual results to the people that can monitor these things, we really get a much better picture as to what's going on with the populations. And it's also, as we've always said, a really good excuse to sit in your own garden with a cup of tea and not worry about the weeding. Butterfly Conservation UK also very handily supply uh, resources for you to actually be able to identify the species that you're most likely to see. So again, if it's you or if it's you plus your kids, then it's a really good learning resource as well. And like I say, just a lot of fun just to sit in your garden and and count things. Yeah, brilliant. And there's loads of places online on Facebook in particular, if you 
well there's groups for everything isn't there where yeah. you can just post pictures and just the amazing knowledge that people have out there they'll just get back to you sometimes within minutes I am with an idea of with moths uk on see. facebook yeah. obsessed <laughs> it's very easy to waste hours on there just wanting to do the pictures it's not a waste <laughs> sorry yes no it's very valuable but better than you know. goggle box isn't it so yeah if you want to get involved then please do that's friday the 16th of july to sunday the 8th of august that you can actually do that and we've put a link to that in the show notes as well so you can find out more information about how to get involved So I think we've uh, purposely kept our news today a little bit short because today's topic is, as I said earlier, a very juicy one. And Ben is going to take the helm with this one, aren't you, Ben? Um, We are talking about whether planting native or non-native plants in your garden is better for wildlife. And uh, my apologies if this sounds a bit like a lecture this time. But there's just so much to talk about and we just can't talk about all of it. But as I've mentioned previously, we'll be doing uh, a longer talk about this for a gardening club in September, That's I think. That's right, yeah. And, you know, with their permission, I'll record the audio, then we can release it as a bonus episode. So if you're after more detail, then, yeah, listen out for that. But also we'll be putting links to everything we're talking about in this episode into the show notes and you can follow the links to the articles there. Also, as we've always said during this podcast, we're trying to not assume that people have certain knowledge to beforehand. And as this topic can sometimes sound a bit complex, Ben's actually broken it down into two sections and we're going to have a tiny little break in the middle of it. Yeah. So I think you're starting off by basically just describing what we mean by native and non-native and a bit of the history of it. And then we're going to go into, um, well, answering the real questions, which is, should we be planting native or non-native plants? So before we begin, we've actually heard recently some garden celebs like James Wong and Claire Rattanen of Gardener's Question Time say that talking about native plants actually has a a colonial or even a racist connotation. Um, They've both written blogs about the topic, which you can find online. But basically, we're going to leave it to you to make up your own minds about this. You can go and look up the blogs yourself. But whether you agree or not, what they have done is to make us think a little bit and encourage us to be quite specific about what questions we are asking. So when we're talking about whether natives or non-natives are best... In terms of plants. Yeah, we are not suggesting that all bedding schemes, herbaceous borders, all rose gardens should be planted exclusively with good British plants just because they're native. Rather, there is good reason to assume that native plants are going to be better for the species that use them in some way, given the fact that all the native plant and animal species we have in Britain have had at least 8,000 years basically to get used to each other. Yeah, so they've become good friends over 8,000 years, or at least they know each other well. That's right. (laughs) But the question really is whether that assumption is actually correct. And there's a lot of science on this that we're going to get into now. So to the definitions, let's talk about what counts as a native plant first of all. And a lot of the definitions we'll be talking about are really things that apply mainly to British ecology. But as far as I know, this definition is a rough one, but is is a general definition for what a native plant is um, in other ecosystems as well. So essentially, a truly native plant is something that arrived in an area without the aid of humans. And that's either through transportation, so that could be a seed blowing on the wind, like the orchids we talked about earlier, or by evolving there in situ. On this definition, Britain has around 1,625 native plant species. 
The surprising thing is that many wildflowers and plants that conservationists are interested in preserving are not native at all. So on top of all the native plants that we have in Britain, we add a bunch of plants that we call naturalised. So on top of the native plants, there are 1,800 naturalised plants growing wild in Britain and many more thousands of occasional garden escapees. And there's a fancy term for cultivated plants that have escaped into the wild, and this is a good one, which is an... an a Gazio Figer fight. That is delicious. But I just, uh, finding these names very, very funny. It's almost like someone's trying to like, make them up on the spot just to make you sound funny when you try and pronounce They do make them up. <laughs> <laughs> of these naturalised plants, so these are non-native but naturalised, we split them into two general camps, the Archaeophytes and the Neophytes. And these sound like very technical terms, but basically an archaeophyte is a plant that arrived in Britain before the year 1500. So that's, I think that's when Henry VII was on the throne. Whereas a neophyte, and neo just means new, um, arrived after that date. I like the concept of 1500 meaning new, like it's quite <laughs> a few hundred nice. years. This just goes to show how long, you know, plants take to actually evolve and things to establish. Yeah, well, the 1500 date is supposed to delineate the time before and after Europeans started taking plants from the Americas and returning them back to Europe. Right. So you might be surprised to learn that plants like corn cockle and corn flower that are in loads of wildflower seed mixes and which are some of them are endangered in their own right or what we call endangered now they're not actually native at all and they were actually brought over probably in cereal seeds by early Neolithic migrants to Britain who brought with them the plants and technology to start farming rather than living as hunter-gatherers. So many of our favourite wildflowers are actually naturalised archaeophytes. That's quite mind-blowing. I think the cornflower, most people would just assume it has been here forever. That's right. And it was all over the country. But now finding it growing wild is extremely rare. It's in all of the wildflower seed mixes. But to find it actually growing wild where it would have done, which is as a, a cornfield annual, mm. so that would have been um, churned up as they collected the corn, that is extremely rare now. So of all these non-native plants, only a relative handful of these are a problem in the countryside. And these problem plants we call invasive so of the 63, and that's at my last count, of the 63 plants that are on the Schedule 9 list of the Wildlife and Countryside Act, and these are the plants which are illegal to plant or to allow to seed into the wild, some are common garden plants like Mombrecia, which is a type of Crocosmia, Crocosmia yeah. um, but many more are just accidental introductions. So essentially, if we like a non-native plant, we call it naturalised. And if we don't like it, we call it invasive. <laughs> yes, and I think I like that because actually, um, yeah, we don't we don't like this connotation that non-native is somehow a bad thing. That's actually completely not what we're saying or what the science says. There are um, surveys going on to look at specifically garden plants that are new to the market that are coming into the UK that may become invasive in the future but that's ongoing live science and the government eventually is going to be producing databases of these plants to look out for. Yeah I think we've made quite a few mistakes in the past and we're essentially just trying not to repeat the mistakes in the future as with Japanese knotweed or something like that. So if the year 1500 is the division between neophytes and archaeophytes what is the date before which we call something native? Now, remembering that a native plant has to arrive or it has to evolve by its own steam, 
and that that's fairly unlikely when you're an island separated on all sides by sea. The date by which we call something native or not is around 8,000 years ago. That's because if you drained the North Sea, which actually is only about 700 metres deep at its deepest, we would see that we're connected to mainland Europe by a land shelf. And during the last ice age, the ice sheets held so much water that the sea level dropped to such an extent that this land bridge was actually exposed. So we weren't an island. We weren't an island. At this time, half of Britain was covered in ice and the rest of it, south, was permafrost. But in the year 20,000 BC, that ice began to retreat and it left behind it a tundra-like landscape that you might see in Siberia now that supported large megafauna like woolly rhino and mammoth, but also some early colonising plants. As the ice retreated further north, plants that had been holed up in refuges as far south as Turkey began to expand their range further north again. And at the same time, the sea level was rising as the ice melted, so the land bridge was shrinking as the sea level rose. Until finally, around 6,000 BC, which is 8,000 years before now-ish, a huge underwater landslide actually sent a tsunami which flooded the last of the land connecting us to Europe. That is, in a really geeky sense, something I really wish I'd been around to see, from a distance, obviously, it's a tsunami, (laughs) but... Just the thought of... Maybe from somewhere nice inland, like Nottingham. Yeah, with a really good telescope. (laughs) But no, it would be absolutely amazing to see something like that happen. Yeah. This area that was flooded is now what we call Doggerland, which any of you who listen to Radio 4 will have heard, of course, on the shipping forecast. And that is the area of land that stretches from the east and south of England, basically to sort of northern Germany, Holland and, and surrounding countries in the north of Europe. And it was at this point that we were functionally separated from the mainland Europe and any plants that made it before the flood are what we now call native. Anything afterwards, with a few exceptions, like the orchids that have found their way here, was likely introduced on the feet, fur or even in the dung of introduced farm animals or in the pockets and bags of human settlers themselves. Well, that's it. I think it's always really difficult to take us out of any equation because we have actually been in existence for thousands of years and Uh, It is in our nature almost to, well, we're part of nature and we do. It's just a fact that we do have an effect on the landscape around us. Yeah, absolutely. And always have done. Now, we have heard it said time and again that Britain has an impoverished plant ecology. And I'll put that in quotes because many of the plants in neighbouring countries would have got here in time if it wasn't for the flooding of this land bridge. So certainly northern European countries with fairly similar climates like France and Germany have many more plants for their land area than we do. So for instance, Germany has 2,656 native plants. That's about a thousand more than us. And France has actually 4,395 native plant species, which is vastly more than we have. But we are very sceptical about any statement around what, in inverted commas, should have happened, because it seems like an argument exclusively reserved for Britain. Uh, You know, you never hear somebody talk about Madagascar or the Galapagos Islands and say, yeah, that's fine, but what if it was connected to the mainland? No, that's a very, very good point, yeah. But with that said, unlike many of these other island ecosystems, Britain actually hasn't had that long to develop many endemic species, so that's species that have evolved only on our island. So Britain actually only has somewhere between 15 and 47 endemic plant species, and that depends on how you're defining whether something's a species or a subspecies, really. Now, it's an open question as to whether more endemic species would evolve 
if we allowed more land to rewild. But that really depends on political decisions, you know, whether we allow ecosystems to be self-directed to some degree or not. That's down to how we decide we're going to manage land in the UK. So basically, we want to park the idea that species from mainland Europe should or shouldn't be here. In other words, I think the argument that they would have got here if it wasn't for the fact that we were an island is nonsense, really, because it did happen and we are. But if we never allow ecosystems to develop outside our control in which endemic species can evolve, then perhaps there is no harm in allowing other non-native plants to become a permanent part of our flora, as they might take up an ecological niche which we are preventing native plants evolving to occupy. So they use the term ecological niche to mean a plant that takes up a certain place in the ecosystem. And it might be that some of the plants that we're bringing in are not pushing out another plant from that niche they're just occupying a niche where there is nothing at the moment so that's the history lesson over to repeat the original question we can now ask is planting native plants better for wildlife than naturalized plants or near natives which are plants from close by in europe or exotics which are plants growing well outside the what they call the palearctic zone which is the eco zone of which britain is a part but I'd actually like to rephrase the question into two parts because the chances are that many of us will have some but not a majority of native plants in our garden and after all the garden should be full of plants we enjoy because a garden is for us as well as the wildlife. So the questions we're going to ask are number one can a garden without native plants be good or even excellent for wildlife and question two would a garden be improved for wildlife by including more natives? Well, I hope that was uh, enjoyable for everyone and, you know, you don't have to go back and listen to it again to get it (laughs) into your heads. No, it's really useful. I think even for me, I sort of know this stuff already, obviously, but it's just really good to keep recapping it and to keep asking these questions. I think that's really important, especially as we know more with science as well. So we thought we'd just give you all a little bit of a break, a little bit of a breather. So during this little break, I just wanted to say how good the response on iTunes has been to this podcast. So thank you very, very much if you've left a review. Yeah, and we had one one star review, didn't we, a couple of months ago? We did. And we're back up to 4.9 out yeah. of 5 now. So. Thanks, guys. That's really appreciated. And yeah, it's just to very politely ask, if you haven't already left a review, then please do so. You can do that at iTunes. If you're listening via our podcast host, Podbean, you can also leave a review on there. So please have a look at that as well. Yeah, you can follow us on there too to get updates on new episodes. So yeah, these reviews are really, really helpful. They help us get into the ears of new listeners and be recommended to people. So thank you very, very much for doing that. And saying that in terms of getting into new ears, we know that a lot of you have been sharing with friends and family and other interested parties. So thank you very, very much for those of you who have done that. And if you fancy sharing the podcast with another like-minded wildlife gardener out there, then, then please do. We've actually also had some really lovely response via email in the last couple of weeks since we last uh, mentioned it. So thank you very much if you've been in touch via email. And I would like to invite more of you to get in touch and let us know what you've been up to in your own gardens. And our email address is thewildlifegarden at hotmail.com. Yes, and because our listeners are sharing us on, we 
now are actually getting around a thousand downloads a fortnight, which is amazing. Yeah, we did not see that coming. So thanks, guys. No, that's right. And thanks to everybody sharing it. We've somehow managed to get into the ears of a journalist at BBC Radio Nottingham who came to interview us this week in one of our gardens. And we were talking all about wildlife gardening and for two seconds about artificial lawn and all of the stuff about wildlife gardening got cut out. Yeah, (laughs) always the way. Yeah, just the stuff on the artificial lawn got put in and they actually cut Ellie completely out of the interview. I didn't think I sounded that bad, but you know. <laughs> no, well, it's just you were talking more about the wildlife stuff. That's and true. Yeah, yeah. We, we didn't know it was just going to be the, the artificial lawn section. Something, again, we will be talking about in future episodes properly. Yeah, but we were joking um, in the van, actually, as we were driving around, because, you know, now we're podcasters. We were saying, oh, yeah, you know, when you get these private numbers, oh, it'll be the BBC calling wanting to get us on Gardener's World. And it was actually the BBC calling on one private number. So, But not to be on Gardener's World. No, no, to be on BBC Radio Nottingham. But still, that's pretty good. So, yeah, we're starting to pick up our phone a bit more now, aren't we? <laughs> yes, we are. So, yeah, I think, uh, is that enough of a break for everyone to have made a cup of tea? Is it time to crack on with the natives versus non-natives? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Okay, I know I've already waffled on about this enough, but I'm going to talk about some of the studies that actually help us answer these questions. And although I've read many of the studies you know, regarding this topic myself, we just don't have time to talk about all of them. So in the show notes, we will include a link to an article by the Wildlife Gardening Forum, which covers a lot of the science behind this. Now, the Wildlife Gardening Forum, they're a brilliant charity, and they've got a fantastic website, where lots of different ecologists and scientists have written sort of synopses of the science behind various different topics, like whether we should be planting native or non-native plants, but also what plants are better for bees, how to look out for solitary wasps in your garden, what to do with a pond, all those different types of topics, they've got something written for you. If you do have a question about wildlife gardening, you're almost guaranteed to find some sort of answer on that website. So we always very much recommend it. Yeah, so like I said, they've got a piece on the native versus non-native plant debate, and that has links to well over 50 different academic papers on the topic. It's a little out of date as it doesn't include the latest RHS-led Plants for Bugs research, and we'll be talking about that later. But it really is a great place to start if you want to know more. So the two studies we will be looking at, at least for the first question, are the Sheffield Bugs Project, which is an acronym for the Biodiversity in Urban Gardens Project. And also we're going to be looking at the seminal work of Dr Jennifer Owen, which was published in her two books, The Wildlife of a Garden, a 15-year study, and her follow-up, a 30-year study. So starting with Dr Owen, you might hear ecologists and wildlife gardeners talk about her with just absolute reverence because of the detail of her study. So Owen, who was an entomologist, spent 30 years recording every species she found in her suburban garden in Leicester. The thing to note about Owen's garden, and the gardens in the Sheffield Bugs Project too, is that they were planted up like regular gardens everywhere in the country. So they contained a mixture of native but mostly non-native plants, including lawns, flower borders, shrubs and and sometimes some trees. And although Owen didn't use pesticides and she also allowed her shrubs to grow rather than keeping them neatly trimmed, those were basically the only concessions she made specifically for wildlife. So really we are talking about a normal suburban garden. Now overall, over 30 years, she recorded 2,673 species. Wow, that is a lot. Yeah, and that included 474 plants, 
1,997 insect species, 138 other invertebrate species, that's things like spiders, and also 64 vertebrates, which included 54 birds. And for three years, she looked specifically at parasitic wasps and found 533 species, including seven species previously unknown in Britain and four that were completely new to science. That is incredible. All that in just one garden. Yeah, I mean, you have to have an incredible depth of knowledge to be able to recognise that. But it just shows what is out there. She even found that moths used 35% of the non-native plants in her garden as a food source, but only 27% of the native plants. And that of the top 15 plants eaten by moth caterpillars, 11 were non-native, with the number one plant being Budlia. And we'll recognise this because we often get the mullein moth caterpillar, yeah, don't we, we do. on Budlia? Yes, beautiful caterpillar, actually. So along with Budlia, things like Michaelmas daisy, flowering currant, parsley as well, they're all in the top 15 plants eaten by caterpillars. And we might be surprised by this, as it's often thought that many native moth and butterfly caterpillars feed exclusively on particular native plants. So the ecological term for this is of them being monophagous, and that means they only eat one type of plant, rather than being polyphagous, which is a caterpillar that eats many types of plant. Like the common emerald moth that we found in our garden. Yeah, exactly. Now, an interesting example is the elephant hawk moth, because there are hundreds of observations looking at the caterpillar of this moth, which was thought to feed exclusively on bed straws or on willow herbs. And that's until it was found feeding on fuchsias. And fuchsias are from the Americas, totally different place in the world. There's just no way they would have ever met a fuchsia in the wild before. But that's until you realise that fuchsias and willow herbs are both in the Onagraceae family. So it might be that they know, the species know what's going to be good for their caterpillars. I think and they know from the flavour. Exactly. So they've, <laughs> they've either smelt something or they've tasted the leaf and said, that's got the chemicals in it that my caterpillars are going to need. So it might be that we just aren't aware of some of these interactions of herbivores on non-native plants, meaning that it's a more complicated picture than just saying that native species, like the butterflies and moths, rely on native plants. Similarly, over 61 gardens, the Sheffield Bugs Project found a total of 1,166 vascular plant species. So that's plants that have a, uh, a water transport system. So basically that discludes mosses and lichens. And they found over 700 invertebrate species. Now that seems a lot less than Owen's study, but we need to remember that Owen's completed her study over 30 years and she was in her garden every day, whereas the Sheffield Bugs Project was completed over a number of gardens and they just weren't there all the time, basically. No night safaris for them. So straight away, based on this research, we can say for certain that a garden that isn't chock full of natives can be truly wonderful for wildlife. So if that's the sort of garden that you have, then that is fantastic and keep going with it. And this is backed up by many, many other studies. And to give just one other mention, the Great Dixter Biodiversity Audit, which was completed between 2017 and 2019, found an absolutely incredible range of species in their garden. And to give you context, Great Dixter is a garden open to the public, but it's full of exotic ornamental plants. That's what they're specialising in. They've got these sweeping herbaceous borders. And yet it was found that there were loads and loads of rare species inhabiting the garden and it was wonderful for wildlife. So their report is also really well worth a read. 
And the I think it was the head gardener was actually really surprised by this as well, wasn't he? That's right. They apparently contacted some entomologists who said that they weren't interested in going to check it out. So instead, they gave a free lunch to the British Arachnological Society, I think it was, mm. and said, well, in exchange for this lunch, while you're eating your lunch, and you know, in exchange for free use of our hall, during your lunch break, why don't you just go out and have a look in the garden, which they dutifully did, and they found all these rare species. Food makes the world go round. That's right. However, despite how good these gardens are for wildlife, it doesn't answer the second question, which is whether planting more natives would be better. So although Owen's study is one of a kind, there is a downside to that because there's no control, which means, in other words, we know that Owen's garden was a haven for wildlife, but could it have been better? There are two ways to answer that question. So the first is to construct a list of every single native plant, every naturalised plant, every cultivated plant that can be grown in Britain, plant them all, and then watch all of them constantly, day and night, in a garden setting, and note down every single animal interaction with those plants, from which we could say for certain that one group or another either supports a wider range of species or a larger abundance of the species which interact with them. But given the fact that there aren't enough ecologists in the world <laughs> to watch every possible plant non-stop, I think basically we can't answer the question that way. So certainly there are a lot of individual studies which focus particularly on bees and butterflies to an extent hoverflies as well that have looked at their foraging habits on native versus non-native plants. The data simply isn't there for all the thousands of other invertebrate species that are likely to be in our gardens. There is another way to answer this question though. If we wanted to test the hypothesis, say that planting more natives makes no difference to invertebrate numbers, then we could construct a repeatable study over several gardens, over several years, controlling for variables like altitude, soil type, temperature, etc., in which one group of gardens was exclusively planted with natives, one with near natives, and one with exotics. And this is exactly what the RHS with partners did through their Plants for Bugs project published over three papers in 2019 and 2020. Their study laid out 36 3 metre by 3 metre plots over two adjacent sites, with each plot planted up to mimic a garden border. The plots were divided into three groups, again planted up with either natives, near natives and exotics. Each plot had 14 different species in it, randomly chosen from a list of 24 species from each group. The natives were just as we described earlier following that definition. The exotics were largely from the southern hemisphere. However, we need to be a bit careful with the near natives because they basically included everything in the Palearctic region, which stretches all the way from Britain to North Africa to Japan. And then they also chuck North America in too. So their use of the word near is largely about plants in the same families as those of native plants. So it's near in the evolutionary tree, rather than plants that could conceivably arrive here themselves, even with significant climate change. So it's not a geographical nearness. So over these three papers, the RHS released data to show whether the different plots were better for flying pollinators, for plant-eating herbivores, and for ground-dwelling invertebrates like the detritivores, which are things like wood lice that live off old plant material. So to cut to the chase, in every study, overall, the native plots supported the largest range and generally the largest abundance of species, although each group of species varied in their results, like the short-tongued bees were different to the long-tongued bees. 
Shortly behind the natives were the near natives, and finally you have the exotics. However, they also found that interactions and abundance were significantly correlated with other factors. So with the pollinators, the total floral resource and the length of floral availability was an important factor. Basically, the more flowers and the longer they were around, the more pollinators they supported. Which is a very obvious outcome. And that's supported by loads of other science as well. With the herbivores, the more plant cover, so the more leaf, over a longer period, the better. And the same is true of the non-herbivorous invertebrates. With one exception, and that was the spiders, which preferred less plant cover overall. And probably that's because they need space between plants actually to build their webs. Mm, That also makes a lot of sense. Now, the RHS study is the gold standard, basically, for this type of work because it was randomised, it controlled for variables, and it was repeated over several years. They actually repeated this study four years in a row, which allowed for weather and temperature variation because, you know, in a warm year, you're going to get more butterflies, say, and in a cool year, you might get different soil life. Do you know which of their gardens they did it in? It was in Wisley and in a site nearby to Wisley as well, I think. So... With their data, and I say this is really the gold standard, we can indeed say that given the best science at the moment, it is likely that more native plants are better. With a few major caveats. So the RHS chose 24 native plants, which we already knew from observations were good for wildlife, right? So we the, the list of plants that they used to plant up the native borders were already a sample from plants which we knew supported lots of different species now in a garden setting as a normal gardener unless you're going to search every native plant you buy on the various invertebrate databases to compare the number of observed interactions as a regular person we don't really know whether that particular native plant we're buying is better than any other um And we're going to come back to this next week in our interview with Nick Chu from Bristol University. And he's looking at nectar production in plants. But as a quick spoiler, basically, it certainly isn't the case that we can assume natives produce more or better nectar than non-natives overall, because it's largely down to the individual species. So although the RHS were picking from a list of 24 native species that are good for wildlife, there's no guarantee when you go to the garden centre that the native plants you're buying are going to be from that list. So unless you are constantly keeping that list in mind and you only want to buy those 24 plants, we actually don't have the science to say that plants off that list are equally as good. But the thing is, as gardeners, we can't actually look up every individual plant on the databases because we never do any gardening. (laughs) Uh, We spend all our time reading, you know, entomological papers and things like that. That would Um, be comparing the how many native plant species do we have here over... 1,625. Yeah. So that, that's a lot of time. Exactly, yeah. Um, so basically, we do have to make some sweeping generalisations. So to, to round this up, basically, assuming the RHS studies are accurate and they represent the native flora more widely, and assuming you can extrapolate from their research that natives are better, what we want to know is where does planting natives stand in the list of the most important things to worry about when you're thinking about improving your garden for wildlife and i've been thinking about how to really describe this so what i want you to do is imagine a garden that is absolutely perfect for wildlife which has no native plants in it whatsoever so what would that look like well you will have planted more plants so you'll have an overall much larger density of plant cover 
which the science shows increases the number of herbivores. You're going to have a much longer flowering period ideally things in flower all through the year and in fact some science in london has shown that bumblebees can actually have two broods a year because there's so much floral resource available over the winter there things like mahonia and other winter flowering shrubs you will have put down the pesticide bottle you might have put in a pond you might have dead wood areas you might not be too tidy you might have hedges instead of fences everything that we talk about with wildlife gardening imagine you've done it all right but you don't have any native plants in there now that garden is going to be absolutely fantastic for wildlife and the reason why you might have non-natives in there is because as the rhs showed in their study if you include exotic plants they lengthen the amount of time that you have flowers in the garden which is good for the insects or the wildlife and for you as well that's why we do it so imagine that's the case now what the rhs science shows is that if you took each individual flower from that garden that you've planted and if there was a native plant that did the same thing for you on average it is probably better to swap that individual plant out with a native plant So what do we mean by this? Let's say you've got a a trellis next to a patio and you wanted to grow something that flowers in the summer for a beautiful evening scent and you've planted a jasmine. Maybe it's going to be better to plant a honeysuckle instead. Let's say you've got a beautiful herbaceous border with a nice statuesque pink plant, maybe a monada or something like that. Well, maybe in that case, it would be better to swap it out with a purple loosestrife or a similar plant to that let's say you've got a small flowering tree well perhaps swap it out for a native crab apple instead and so what you are doing is every time you make one of these changes for a native plant you're not reducing the amount of flowering you're not reducing the amount of plant cover all you are doing is swapping one plant out for another so that's really the way i like to think of it all these other things are more important plant more plants put down the pesticide bottle, everything we've just said, that is what you should be focusing on first. But when you're going to buy a new plant and you're thinking, what do I want this plant to do? Then why not consider the native plant options as well? Because there's always a chance it is going to be slightly better for wildlife. And that is exactly why we are doing our native plant of the week section on this podcast, because many native plants are garden worthy. They're beautiful for you. And they're also fantastic for wildlife. Yeah, thanks so much, Ben, for trying to, you know, get across that complexity in a way that everyone can understand. I think it's important to reiterate, though, that what Ben has just described is actually a thought experiment. And as he said, while natives are important, if you do already have a garden that's full of exotics, what we're not saying is to rip them all out and swap them in for native plants. There are other more important things to be doing for wildlife. This is more to inform those of you that have a gap in your borders or on a fence or want to put in a new tree. Maybe there is a native plant that will do what you're looking for. And in which case, then listen to our native plant of the week. Which is a smooth segue. Oh, so smooth. (laughs) Except we're not actually going on to the native plant of the week. 
Oh, aren't we? What are we going on to? We are going to our correspondents from around the country. Oh, yes, of course. How could I forget? Yes, and this time we are going to friend of the show and long-time listener, Rhiannon Hoy, talking about what she does for wildlife in her own garden at home. Ben and podcast listeners. My name's Rhiannon. I'm an assistant ecologist for an ecological consultancy in the south of England and I'm also a volunteer for various organisations like the Wildlife Trust and my local amphibian and reptile group. I recently started my Wilder Garden project in the hope of rewilding my garden and improving it for wildlife. In November, I installed a small wildlife pond, which was a lot more work than I expected because once we got 10 centimetres into the soil, we then hit chalk for the next 30 centimetres. However, I now have lots of life in and around the pond. We get damselflies and birds visiting during the day and lots of common frogs chilling out on the rocks and plants in the dark. My second biggest wilder garden project has been my wildflower meadow. I hand-stripped with a shovel an 8 meter squared area of lawn from the back of my garden, which again was a lot more work than I anticipated. Then I sowed two mixes of native seeds in the spring. I used one packet of cornfield annuals to give me a display of flowers in the first year, and the second packet contained native perennials like cuckoo flower and birdsfoot trefoil in order to benefit wildlife for years to come. Currently, though, the meadow isn't a meadow and it still looks like an eight metre squared bare patch of soil with a little bit of green growth dotted around it. However, without the flowers appearing, I think I can identify that we have wild red clover and maybe some common corn cockle appearing, which is really nice to see. In terms of future plans for my garden, I'm continuing with No Mow May and joining in with Let It Bloom June. As the garden is used by my parents and younger brother, I do still mow function zones and pathways through the grass, but the areas that have been left are almost knee-high with different flowers and grasses, such as crested dog's tail, which I've heard is the food plant for butterflies in the skipper and brown family, which is really exciting. I've never gardened before, but I'm really enjoying the first year of my mini rewilding project. The tips from this podcast are a huge help, so thank you, Ellie and Ben, for sharing your knowledge and letting us be a part of your wildlife gardening. Oh, thanks very much, Rhiannon. That's really nice to hear from you. And I just want to say that Ben and I can very much empathise with your difficulties uh, in digging a pond because you never quite know what's going on with the ground beneath <laughs> your feet until you stick a spade in it. So well done for persevering and actually uh, going through with that. Yeah, one day we were actually digging a border, a new border in a customer's garden, and we found an illegal bakery under the ground i mean bits of it wasn't like an intact thing someone had buried all the different parts of this bakery yeah, it, was, yeah, very it was like a suburban house and they've yeah. been running they've been running a bakery from their outhouse an illegal bakery it's going to take yeah. some topping that one <laughs> yeah. i think in terms of archaeological finds so as i said a few minutes ago my not so smooth segue into this week's native plant of the week and this week is something that we've seen quite a lot of in the last few days. And it is the Vipers bugloss. And the Latin name for that is Echium vulgare. Now, this plant sits in the Borogenaceae plant family, which is quite a big one. And it contains quite a lot of our common 
garden plants, so things like comfrey and obviously borage, and also lungwort, pulmonaria, which I wasn't actually aware of. And the thing that you'll probably notice that that they have in common is this tendency towards blue flowers, which is actually quite a rare thing in botany. Yeah, that's interesting. Mm. I, I didn't know lungwort was in the same family as all those. No, I didn't either. Now, Echium vulgare, or Vipers bugloss, is a herbaceous plant, and you'll only probably really notice it when it's actually flowering. In the Northern Hemisphere, this can happen anywhere between June and September. So they say we've seen it coming out basically this week, haven't we? It's all over Nottinghamshire, isn't it? And when they are in flower, boy, you very much do notice them. So what you're looking at is a a 30 centimetre to one metre spire of lots of vibrant trumpet-shaped blue flowers. And actually, these individual flowers start off pink and they become more intensely blue with age. Each individual flower is about one to two centimetres long and it protrudes from this flowering stem. But as I said, overall, what you see is this big, tall sort of flowering spike. It's essentially very, very impressive when you come across it. In the UK, part of the mask sand dunes, which is near Redcar in Yorkshire, have so much Vipers bugloss that it's actually nicknamed the Blue Mountain. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, really, really cool. And that obviously describes the effect of having so much of this plant in one place. And it's also found in quite high abundance in the East Anglian Breckland district. On the whole, though, it's native to Europe and Western and Central Asia. Now, it's usually a lowland plant, but it has actually been found growing at around 365 metres up in Scotland. But that was a planted plant. But it just goes to show that it's possible. And in terms of what habitat you'll likely come across it, there's a little bit of variety from grassland, but also bare disturbed ground. But in general, in terms of soil type, it it favours well-drained sort of sand, chalk or limestone soil. Yeah, where we saw it this weekend, it was growing on just sandy, shingly stuff next to a path. Yeah, yeah, no, next a to a road. Path. Yeah, yes. a concrete footpath. And so, yeah, if the soil is correct, you can find it growing on verges. So railway embankments, roadsides, things like that. Old pits, heaths, field margins, just general waste ground, dunes and also sandy shingles, so coastal areas. Now, sadly, its frequency is in decline, like lots of things. And this is probably due to intensification of agriculture, reclamation of land for agriculture, and also general human redevelopment, just generally just getting rid of it. On the flip side, it is also another one of these plants that us humans have introduced to other places around the world. Now, it's listed as invasive in 18 countries or islands. So I apologise <laughs> on behalf of our predecessors for spreading this plant around. And it's, it has actually been introduced into North America in the same way that the cow parsley we saw when we covered that plant a few, couple of weeks ago. So depending on your location and viewpoint, it's either an exotic plant or it's an invasive weed. So before you go ahead and decide to plant it, if you are not in the UK or in, in Europe, then please do be careful and maybe look it up first. Like many of our native plants, there are many, many, many names by which this goes, including adderwort, blue devil, blue thistle, blue weed, cat's tail, North American blue weed, which indicates that it is a weed there, snake flower, viper's grass, and also viper's herb. There's a lot of snaky goings on in that. And I said the English common name that it mostly goes by is viper's bugloss. And this is because of all of its snake-like qualities. We've mentioned this bit before, but we, we are big fans of the Flora Britannica by Richard Maybe, And I just don't think that anything can really top his description of it. And in that book, he writes... 
that the snake-like qualities includes pretty much every part of the plant, including the sprays of flowers that spiral up the stem are half-coiled, the long red stamens protrude from the mouths of the blue and purple flowers like tongues, the fruits resemble adder's heads, and even the speckled stem, it is hairy in fact, suggests snake skins to early herbalists. That's nice. I don't think I've ever actually seen the seed head, so I'll have to watch out for that later in the year. Yes, now we know where it is in Nottinghamshire, we'll have to go back and have a look at the seeds for sure. The term bugloss from the viper's bugloss derives from the Greek for ox-tongued, and this is probably due to the shape of the leaves. And vulgaire, in terms of echium vulgaire, simply means common. It's a Latin term. And you often see this at the end of a Latin plant name. So you could also see vulgaris, vulgatus and other variations. Yeah, and there is another plant in the UK with a common name bugloss as well, which is also another spiky plant. It is indeed. And it's supposed to be because ox tongues are supposed to be bristly, apparently. Yes, and Echium vulgare really does have very hairy leaves. In fact, it's recommended not to really touch it because particularly if you have sensitive skin, it can cause a bit of irritation. And oh, that's it- right. We Yeah, you just jogged my memory. We saw Vipers Bugloss at the Deadly Garden. Oh, at, we did, didn't we? Oh, Anik. where is it? Anik Gardens. The poison Gardens. That's right, sorry. Yeah. yeah, at Anik Castle and Gardens. They've got this garden full of deadly plants and... They had some viper's bugloss there and that's because it's uh, slightly uh, irritant to some people. It's also poisonous, but I was just about to say that, I think we mentioned this before, what used to go in medicine was something called the doctrine of signatures. Now, thankfully, we don't use this anymore, but the doctrine of signatures dictated that a plant's medicinal use was hinted at by the way it looks. In terms of the viper's bugloss, like I said, it has all these snake-like qualities and early herbalists really thought that that meant it was good in terms of treating snake bites. <laughs> so no, don't do that. <laughs> oh, I've been bitten by this poisonous thing, so I'll imbibe this poisonous deadly poisonous plant. plant. <laughs> no, it's just very interesting to, to see what humans used to think, but um, please don't go start taking uh, taking Echium vulgare. Well, just don't go getting bit by snakes. Now, with all that background said, it's time to move on to the, the good stuff the sexual antics of Viper's Bugloss. It's a biennial plant, and as we've seen before, that means it grows and then flowers over a two-year period. However, it can also be a short-lived monocarpic perennial, and that just means it still only ever flowers once, but that might happen over more than a two-year period. And once it flowers, it does die off. So that's the same as cowplasty. Exactly the same, yes. So in its first year of growth, it forms a dense basal rosette of these deep green hairy leaves, and these are all long and finger-like. Beneath those is a long taproot, and this both anchors the plant and is also the energy store which will enable it to flower. So that, if it behaves as a biennial should, will happen in year two. But in some cases, maybe if conditions aren't right flowering, it might wait a bit longer. But either way, when it does flower, it throws up this impressive many-flowered spike. And at this point, the basil leaves actually die back as well. So I thought I'd just introduce a couple of drum rolls here because Echium vulgare is a self-compatible plant. And I don't think we've covered this so far. All the plants we've done need another plant to pollinate. So when something is self-compatible, that means it can pollinate itself. However, in my reading around this from various studies that have been done, it does still have adaptations which prevent that self-pollination from happening really, really freely. And before I go into that, I'm just going to give a pollination species spoiler and say that most pollination is actually done by bumblebees. 
So going back a step, the plant is hermaphrodite and each flower contains both male and female sexual organs. So the first adaptation to prevent this self-pollination within one single flower is simply that the male anthers, which hold the pollen, and the female style are spatially separated. And actually, in some of the studies I read, in controlled environments where insects, i.e. bumblebees, were excluded, no pollination occurred. So the pollen cannot just transfer between those two sexual organs within one flower. So it needs our bee populations intact to remain in, in existence. The second adaptation is all around the way the plant actually flowers. So as I described, one plant produced flowering stems of up to a metre in height. And actually, it can produce up to 20 of those spikes. In each of these flowering stems, there can be up to 50 cymes. Now, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's another botanical term, and it just describes the way a flower head is structured. And a cyme, it's a type of flower cluster, if you like. And with each cyme, there are around 20 flowers in a sort of line, and they flower in succession. That's the curled up bit like a snake before it unfurls with the flowers. That's right, yes. So therefore, if you can imagine all of those 50 cymes, 20 flowers on each cyme, that means that each plant, each, each of those spires produces hundreds of individual flowers. And I'm just going to call this a bee bonanza. They absolutely love it. So as I just mentioned, because we're talking about the adaptations of how that spire actually goes about flowering, the arrangement of those flowers is actually very complex and they don't all simply open up at the same time. So the flowers are protandrous and that means that essentially the male sexual organs sort of come out first and the female ones sort of sit in the, in the wings waiting. And in one study it was actually noted that there are five stages to each flower of Echium vulgare, and that happens over a three-day period. So this is for each individual flower. So stage one, the pink flower, where there's only a small hole between the petals visible. So that's the male stage, so the stamens are, are protruding. Stage two, the style, the female style, is smaller than the anthers. Again, that's still the male stage, but the flower turns blue. Stage three is that the style is somewhere between small and large anthers. It's still considered the male stage, but the female sexual organ, i.e. the style, is actually receptive at that point. Stage four, the style then becomes longer than the anthers, and this is known as the female receptive stage. And then stage five, the flower starts to wilt. And again, that's also a female receptive stage. So you've got these five stages and they all happen over just a three-day period. And in that time, the flower moves from pink through to blue through to really deep blue and then wilts off. In the main study that I read around this, the proportion of flowers in each of the five stages stays roughly the same throughout the day. But interestingly, the bumblebees that pollinate it and are attracted in with the nectar and pollen favour stages two, three and four. And these flowers have a higher chance of being visited first. Stage five was instantly the most avoided stage, but I couldn't see whether that affected pollination in general, because obviously that is one of the major female receptive stages. The bees also favour freshly opened virgin flowers. And that just means flowers which have not been foraged by another bee beforehand. They actually know which flower has been foraged before them. They'll always go for a virgin. <laughs> I thought Ben might give a chuckle at that. <laughs> anyway, moving on. 
by opening its flowers in stages like this, rather than in one huge bonanza where they all open at the same time and all at the same stage at the same time. Echium sort of puts bees off visiting lots of flowers on one stem because there aren't going to be that many flowers at the stage that favours the bee foraging. And this forces the bee just to look elsewhere for pollen and nectar, whether that's a neighbouring viper's bugloss or another plant altogether. The complexity of how the flowers open basically means that fewer flowers on a single plant are visited in a sequence by one bee. So one bee will only visit 5% of the flowers on any one plant. So that just reduces the amount of self-pollination that might otherwise happen. So yeah, I was actually quite surprised to really read this, that despite the plant being able to self-pollinate and it produces viable seed when that happens, it still seems to favour through this adaptation in terms of flowering time and structure to favour outcrossing, which is where it forces the bee, if you like, to go to another plant, get pollen from that, and then come back and pollinate. And actually, in the same study, the the rates of self-pollination for any one plant were quite low. I think it was 12.5% average, and that's anywhere between 0 and 33% of the seed were self-pollinated. So yeah, I I mean, I welcome anyone, any botanists out there that might be listening. If you could get in touch with more detail about why this might be, then then please do. Yeah, that's quite interesting because things like the bee orchid can self-fertilise. In fact, in most populations in the UK, they have to because the bee that would naturally fertilise them isn't uh, around in that area. But even where the bee is available, they still prefer to self-fertilise. Mm. So, yeah, yeah, so some studies a, have shown that so right. it's really sort of all over the place so let's move on to the cultivation if you would like some vipers bugloss in your own garden and have your own blue mountain going on how how <laughs> nice. could you go about it so as i said it prefers dry sandy and preferably calcareous soils and i didn't mention it earlier but i think maybe it's a bit of a given it also prefers being in full sun that's quite a critical part actually And that means in horticultural terms that it has to have more than six hours of direct sun per day in midsummer. So that's that's a really important criteria to look out for. If you don't have those conditions, I think you might get away with sowing maybe into pots if you're going to sow from seed and then planting out when the when the plant's a bit more established. If you've got slightly heavier soil, you might get away with it. But again, it probably will prefer if your soil's a bit looser and, and maybe you've mixed in some gravel or something into it. Yeah, and calcareous really means just that it's uh, a slightly limey soil, so not so suitable for acid. Yeah, if you're on acid soil, then I, I don't think I would go ahead and plant this. So if your conditions are right and you think you can grow some in your own garden, then in terms of propagation, pretty much seed or plugs, I think, is the way forward with this. And as we said before, plugs are just tiny plants that you get from most wildflower specialists. And as Ben said, we actually went to our local wildflower farm recently and it's a really lovely place called Naturescape, which we always recommend to people to get wildflowers from. And we saw loads of vipers bugloss flowering there. It was absolutely stunning. And as we just said, it was it was completely covered in bees. They just went mad for it. And they were also selling the seed as well. And actually, Jack Perks from the Bearded Tits podcast was also on the hunt for some of the seeds. So I think he bought some. So Jack, if you're listening, do get in touch and let us know how you get on with sowing that. That would be really good to know. 
In terms of actually sowing the seed, then the recommendation is to sow in late spring to early summer, which is now. And I think that just mimics when the seed would be dropped from any plants that are flowering at around about now anyway. And if you've got really suitable soil, you can just sow directly where it will flower and it probably will come up. You can also sow it into pots. And either way, wherever you've sown it, just make sure you cover it with a little bit of soil and water really sparingly. So you don't want it to completely dry out, but you also don't want to deluge it because like I say, it prefers dry soils. So in terms of pollination, gave the spoiler away a minute ago, bees are the main pollinators for this plant. And if you're looking to feed your bees, then this is a really, really, really good one to put in your garden. And actually, there have been recorded 20 bumblebee interactions with Vipers bugloss, which is huge, considering we only have 24 resident species of bumblebee in the UK. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I was just looking up some of them um, that I didn't know already. And the gypsy cuckoo bee is one that actually has been found to pollinate it. It's really, I love that name so much. And also the leaf cutter bee, but also various mining bees, a solitary digger bee, and of course the honey bee. Yes, and you looking this up found the difference between uh, digging bees, which are supposedly different to mining bees, aren't they? So yeah, I don't. I don't yeah. know if the mining bees have pickaxes and the digging bees just <laughs> go in with a spade. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we'll have to look that one up properly. Also, another insect that's attracted in is the marmalade hoverfly, something we've mentioned before. And that's very likely our commonest and most widespread hoverfly here in the UK. It's a really cute little thing. And another moth, we're on the moth theme today a little bit, but the pale shining brown, which is a quite a big moth with a 52 millimetre wingspan. Wow. Um, it is mostly found in southeast England, but again, in June and July when it flies, it has been known to also feed on Vipers bugloss. In terms of it, being a food plant for various larval stages or other insects, lots and lots of different interactions have been recorded here. And I'm just going to very quickly run through them. So we've got 10 beetles. We've got one tick slash mite. We've got one fly, two hemiptera, which is a true bug. And also a butterfly. The stunning painted lady butterfly is really attracted to this plant in, in its larval stage. The caterpillars will actually feed on it. And also... 18 macro moths, that's just a fancy term for big moths, big moths, including the orange swift moth, which is a really stunning one, and also six micro moths. So it's a really good all-rounder in terms of feeding your insects in your garden. Another thing to look out for if you are going to plant it in your own space is that there is actually a cultivated form called blue bedder. And the Royal Horticulture Society has actually given this cultivar an award of garden merit, an AGM, and that's based on the plant's performance under UK growing conditions. So that's also something you can look out for. Maybe Just means it's a good centers. doer. It's a good doer. Will probably survive in your garden. So yeah, as I said, this plant is looking really, really stunning right now, and will be flowering until September. So later, in, later on in the summer. So please do go ahead and consider planting it. Yeah, even if you don't have space for a, a giant blue mound, just mound. or mountain, wasn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah just, just make yourself a, I don't know, a blue lump or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, do, and please do let us know if you, uh, if you actually do plant it and it does well in your garden as well. We'd love to see it. Just before we wrap up for this episode, we should talk about the next book club, which is coming up in an, a few episodes. And the book we're going to be talking about is Making a Wildflower Meadow by Pam Lewis. It's a, a really, really wonderful book if you want to know about how to get started with a wildflower meadow at home. And you can maybe sit in a wildflower meadow and read it if you've yeah, got one yeah, near you. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
if you want to see what we're up to then you can get in touch via twitter we are at the wild gdn or on facebook which is facebook.com forward slash the wildlife garden podcast and in two weeks time we will be airing an interview that i gave to a phd student in bristol a few days ago and we're talking all about the nectar production of our garden plants and it was a fascinating chat so i'm really looking forward to actually putting that in your ears and finally if you want to be one of our plant correspondents from around the country please do get in touch and we'll send you details of how to send in a recording for us to feature on the show so with that said until the next time it's keep gardening and goodbye bye